Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. Here we are, finishing a day of practice. And like any other day, it's a day unto itself. It's unique, never to be repeated. And each day is like this. Each breath is like this. And I think that knowing this is the beginning of wakefulness. The opposite of this state is the hindrance that I want to speak about today, sloth and torpor. And really think of it as a compound word, hyphenated, sloth and torpor. This is the second of the five hindrances that Buddhism identifies as the obstacles to our practice. And particularly, though not exclusively, the practice of seated meditation. And together, sloth and torpor, torpor <laughs> um, they're that general feeling of malaise, of heaviness, of I can't be botheredness. Sloth is that physical sluggishness, a kind of laziness, and a general lack of energy. Torpor is mental lethargy is that dullness of the mind, boredom, apathy. And both are different from fatigue, from tiredness, because these dissipate when you rest your body and mind, right? They have a physical cause. Sloth and torpor, on the other hand, have an emotional root. It's when we find it hard to care about our practice and to muster up the energy to do it. And as I mentioned on Wednesday, sloth and torpor really shut us down. And because we're shut down, it makes it very hard to see what is needed in that moment to wake up. 
this is perhaps, I'm not sure, but I think this is perhaps the most challenging of the hindrances because it's so all-encompassing, right? You're, you're checked out. So how do you, one, know that, and two, do something to check yourself back in? John Climacus, a 7th century Christian monk, called sloth and torpor, which in Christianity is called ascidia. He called it a slackness of the mind. Right? Your mind is, is, is kind of, what's another word for slack? Um, you know, if, if you have a rubber band, it's not taut, it's, 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 you know, it's just blah. But even more interestingly, he called it a hostility to vows taken. And to me, this is the key. Sloth and torpor is a hostility to vows taken. The veil comes down over our minds. The fog envelops us. And we're, in a way, hostile, certainly averse to our vows in that moment. And really remember this because, again, to me, this is the key to working with this hindrance. It's not just that we're sleepy or tired or disinterested in a passive way. It's that some part of us has chosen, consciously or unconsciously, to turn away from what is most important to us. Not to someone else, to us, that we forget. And so in that moment of sluggishness, we don't care about awakening. We, we can't care. We don't want to be challenged. We don't want to have to try too hard. We just want to be left alone. We just want to veg out a little. And in one sense, all the hindrances are like this. Right? A subtle or overt turning away from our vows, not because we're bad people, not because we're bad practitioners, or because we really don't care, but because we're caught. Kind of like when you walk through a, a web, right, a spider's web, and, 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 you, and you're like covered in that, in those gossamer threads. And if it's a big one, it's like it's just all over you. And so in that moment, that checking out is stronger than our wish to wake up. And I feel that that is why vow is so important. Because vow can hold that desire, if that's the hindrance that is stopping us. It can hold that push and pull. You know, it takes us this way, it takes us that way, it grabs us, it squeezes us, and it spits us out. Because that's what desire does. Vow can hold us steady in the boiling water that is desire. It's very difficult, very difficult. But it can. Vow can do that. It has that capacity. 
So I, I mentioned the other day the simile the, the Buddha used for these hindrances is that you have a pot of water and desire and the water is boiling. And so in that roiling of the surface of the water, you can't see yourself. But the vow is underneath and around and over that roiling. And so even if you do get spinned out, spit out, in my humble opinion, it is a vow that brings you back sooner or later. It can also hold our tiredness, like with ourselves, with our minds, with practice, with the teacher, with our bodies that rebel, that they don't always do what we want. Now, I don't know if you find this, but I am finding that as I get older, I need to adjust the way that I practice. And I find it very humbling. I find it continuously humbling because my energy is very different now. It's a little bit more of a, of a steady burn and a red-hot fire. And of course, it's appropriate for this stage in my life. I don't always like it, but it's timely. And so that means I have to calibrate, recalibrate, because I still want to do so much. I want to learn so much. I want to write so much. I want to share so much. I want to see so much. So I have to be patient. I have to do it a little more slowly, more steadily. Vow can also hold our restlessness, our worry, our fear of what we know and what we don't know. Do you know that originally the word worry meant to strangle? Like when a dog grabs a prey by the throat and shakes it. I guess that's why we say that a dog worries a bone, right? It just gnaws at it for hours, just like we gnaw on this or that train of thought. We're not really getting any sustenance whatsoever, but there's something there, right? So we keep at it, that little piece of gristle we can hold on to. Why? Because it gives us something to hold on to. Whereas the reality is there is vast space and that can be scary. Well, we hold on to that little piece of bone and gristle. But really, it would be more accurate to say that the bone is gnawing us. Or that we're being gnawed by that bone. <clears throat> it's the thought, a series of thoughts that has us by the throat. And so how do we release? Vow. Vow is the action of releasing that grip. Slowly, slowly, you know, you do it a little bit, you freak out, you grab on again. You do it a little bit, you freak out, you grab on again. Until slowly you realize, I'm done 
with this particular bone, I'm done. And you drop it. And then we can turn towards something that will actually nourish. Because we're not occupied otherwise. Thou can hold our doubt because it is so vast, it is so spacious, that it's barely going to get disturbed by our little self-questioning. Thou helps us to see that we're not actually dealing with a pot of water. It's the whole ocean. And so you throw a pebble in the ocean, what happens? And it barely makes a ripple. Barely noticeable. It's only when our mind feels small, right? When it's tight, it's constricted. It's only when that space, this space, feels constricted, cramped, that we struggle. And so we give it space. We open up. Whatever it is that we're grappling with, we give it lots and lots of space. And when we do, it becomes workable. Kind of in an almost magical way. Because the thing is the same. We just gave it more room. So you see how these uh, hindrances feed on each other? You know, I'm bored after sitting here for hours, so I look for distraction. You know, I follow a fantasy, I watch a movie in my mind, a story. But this, in some way, makes me feel kind of hollow. And I don't like myself when I'm in that state. And so maybe I project my displeasure into someone else. And I begin to doubt, you know, do I even have the capacity to be awake? Can I do this? Is this even working? How do I know if it's working? And I get worried that maybe I don't have that capacity. And that feeds the doubt even more. And on and on we go. It's just like pacing in a circle, in a prison of our own making. We walked into the room. We locked the door behind us. We took the key and we threw it out. But the thing is, the door isn't actually locked. The thing is, there is no door. There are no walls. And when we figure that out, in that instant, in that instant, we're free. But we do have to be alert enough. Or we have to, at the very least, know the ways that that sloth and torpor presents itself. Because it's actually not just a lack of interest. It can masquerade as discouragement, as a kind of pity, self-pity, or as complacency. Well, that part of us that thinks, I can't do this. How long is this going to take? 
everyone seems to be able to be doing this except me. I don't know how we know that, just from a room full, virtual or physical, of people sitting quietly. But people say this to me often, <laughs> too often. Everybody seems to be doing it except me. Or the opposite, <laughs> piece of cake. And the trickiest one, when it masquerades as compassion. Oh, you poor baby, you're exhausted. Just take a nap, just take a nap. I mean, you're not really sitting, you're not focusing. Just go lie down, just go lie down. And maybe you are exhausted and you should go lie down. But the thing is, you know, when we know, we know. We just do it. Like, we don't have to spend time trying to convince ourselves why it's a good idea to go lie down. We're tired. We're rest. Sloth and torpor is wily, right? It's persuasive. That's how you know it's a hindrance. It's that little voice in your ear. You don't need to work so hard. Why do you work so hard? But notice, what are all these subtle forms of the hindrance? Protection. All of these hindrances do this, in fact. You know, they protect the self. From what? From failure, from disappointment, from loss, from harm. You know, it's easier to tell ourselves, you know, I can't do this, than to try, and what if we fail? But what does it mean to fail when the work that we're doing can't be measured, can't be quantified? How does the ocean fail at being the ocean? Or a mountain? Or the sky? What makes us so special that we can fail at being ourselves when every other creature, every other thing on the planet can't? We're not that special. Or rather, our, our specialness, our uniqueness is other, is the fact that we can turn and wonder, why do I think I'm failing? Am I sure? That's our strength. And so if we're going to work with this hindrance, first we have to clear away the slime. Because that's the simile for this hindrance, is that it's like a, like a layer of algae, you know, of crud, that's settled over the pot. And so we need to clear it away. 
so that we can see clearly. And so we do have to be aware enough and inspired enough to not just get comfortable, kind of resting in that slime. But as I was thinking of this, you know, I thought, you know what I love about these hindrances, if there is a thing to love? The challenge that they present. Because they're not actually subtle. No, it's not like I have to be on guard for this mysterious, unknown thing that I've never experienced before. And if I've been practicing long enough, I know at some point I won't want to. Just guaranteed. At some point, it won't feel like it's working, your practice. Or it just won't feel good. It won't keep you kind of entertained. It won't hold you in the way that it did perhaps at the beginning. And so in that moment, how do we encourage ourselves to keep going? Because ultimately what we want is to not be caught. How do I remind myself that being awake is in fact what I want most? Not in some abstract way, but so that I can be here for my life. I read this beautiful story by a French writer, Jean Giorno, and it's called The Man Who Planted Trees. And so there was a man, he was a shepherd, who lived in the foothills of the Alps. And it was just a, a barren land that skirts uh, Provence. And he lived alone. His wife had died, his son, his only son had died. And so he lived in a stone cottage that he had built himself with a tile roof. And the wind passed through the tiles and it sounded like the ocean. And it was immaculate. And his clothes were perfectly sewn. He was always clean shaven. So even though he lived alone, and he spent really most of his time alone, he took great pains, great care of himself, his animals, the place that he lived in. And he spoke very little, but he was also very generous. So every once in a while, people would just pass through hiking, walking. And somebody, a man passed through one day, and the shepherd shared with him a little bit of his soup. And then after supper, they were sitting together quietly, and the man watched as the shepherd just um, spent time sorting acorns from this huge bag that he had at his feet. And he would pull them out, and then he would inspect them, and then sort them into these little piles on a table. And every time he'd pick one up, you know, he would really turn it in his hands, you know, to really see, is it, is it whole, is it cracked in any way? And he would put aside the ones that were cracked and the ones that were intact. He would, he would put in piles of 10 
And he did this for a few hours until he had a hundred acorns. And then he checked them again to make sure that they were the best of what he had. And then he set them aside and he went to bed. Imagine this man, he's carefully sorting his acorns. Every bit of him is focused on this task. One acorn, another acorn, another acorn. Does it make you think of anything? And the next morning, the two men left the cabin and they climbed to the top of a ridge. And there the shepherd led his sheep loose and carrying a bag in one hand and a rod, an iron rod in the other, he slowly made his way from one end of the ridge to the other and he would just poke a hole in the ground every few feet. And then he'd drop an acorn, refill the hole and move on. And the visitor realized he was planting oak trees. And then he asked him, but I mean, do you know whose land this is? And the shepherd said, no, I, I, I don't know. But it's been bare, it's been desolate for years. And he felt, you know, this needs trees. There's nobody else here to do the work, so I'm going to do it. And he began. And that day he planted trees all morning. He took a break for lunch, a simple lunch, some bread, some cheese, some fruit. And then he continued planting into the afternoon. And in the course of the very sparse conversation he had with the other man, it came out that he had already planted a hundred thousand trees over a period of three years. And of those, he calculated that about 20,000 had sprouted. And he thought he'd probably lose half right, to blight, to animals, to weather. But then he figured that's still 10,000 trees where before there were none. The First World War happens, the second, and the man who would become a beekeeper because his sheep were really threatening the trees, he just went on planting, completely unbothered by the conflict around him. And when he died, more than 30 years later, there was a natural forest. And it had completely transformed what was once uh, that barren land. And towns had grown around it. And the people who before were living hand to mouth were hopeless, had these full, rich lives. More than 10,000 people who owed their happiness to a single man. And none of them had any idea of it because he had never spoken about what he did, except to the one visitor. And that's exactly how he liked it. He wasn't after recognition of any kind. And so when he died, the land had been completely transformed. As if that desert had never been there. 
but it had it had been there and now it was this lush alive buddha field You know, I could talk about mindfulness and attention as tools to work with sloth and torpor. I could talk about the classical antidote, which is awareness of death, right? To create a sense of urgency. I could refer to the teachings in the sutras and to their commentaries and the commentaries to the commentaries. But instead, I'm going to say this. When things get hard, when they get complicated, confusing, when you feel you're exhausted and you feel like you can't go on, remind yourself of your vow, which means you need to have one. And it needs to be clear in your mind. And I would make it short so that it's memorable. And when it feels distant, get very close to just a single thing, like your breath. If you're not on your seat, like a dish that needs to be washed. And follow it carefully sorting the thoughts that get in the way. You take one thought, you look at it, and you let it go. Just one thought. That's all you need to do. And then you pick up another one, if it appears, and you look at it, and you let it go. And you return, and you return, and you return. That's it. That is how we carefully plant seeds. When the land feels barren, the forest is there. It was there at some point, and it will be there if you let it. And so all we have to do is choose to pick up a seed, to drop it in the ground, and to water it. Because there's nothing wrong with a desert. It's just that in the midst of all those trees, you can rest, true rest, in the shade of an oak, for example. And then you can get up refreshed when work is what is needed. And so, love the work of keeping this forest growing. Because if you can do that, you'll never run out of nourishment. And neither will anyone else. Thank you for listening. 
Uh, if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. And if you would like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.